wonder if any of you here have been through a time of deep distress. And the reality is that we all do eventually. We all eventually go through a time that, that causes great distress. But if you are facing something that causes deep distress and there's nothing you can do to escape it, okay, even, even if you try to run it, it, run away from it, it just follows you, how do you cope? How do you cope when you are in distress? How do you maintain your sanity? How do you not go crazy? Uh, how do you avoid letting the distress actually make you someone who is bitter, who is cynical and withdrawn? What is your lifeline in the midst of deep distress? And that, see, that's something that David had to deal with at this point in his life. Because at this point in his life, he was continually being hunted by King Saul. Uh, Saul was the rejected king of Israel. David was the anointed to replace Saul. But Saul was absolutely determined to make sure that David never got to the throne. And so he hunted David every single day of his life in order to kill David. And so you can imagine during that time the distress that David must have felt. And yet we know that that distress did not drive David mad. It didn't make him bitter or cynical. Instead, it actually made him a better person. And how did he do that? Do you know he actually tells us? Because the passage that we read today talks about the time when uh, the Ziphites handed him over and David actually wrote a psalm out of that very experience and in that psalm, he tells us how he coped with all of this, uh, this being hunted, all of the distress that he experienced at that time. He tells us how he coped, and at the center of the psalm, at Psalm 54, it says in verse 4, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. There it is. That's the secret. And that's actually a good commentary on these two uh, chapters that we're looking at today in 1 Samuel because they show us how it is that God upholds our life. How God can uphold you in your own time of distress. Because in this passage, we see that God does it in three ways. He upholds us by his promises. He upholds us by his protection. And he upholds us by his purposes. And so we're going to look at those three things in these two chapters. Uh, so first, we see that God upholds us by his promises uh, that's in chapter 23, verses 1 to 18. Uh, begins with um, trouble at a place called Keilah, and uh, that was a, an Israelite town. Uh, the, the Philistines were told of raiding Keilah and stealing all the grain. And someone tells David about it. And verse 2, we read that David inquired of the Lord and he asked, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go, attack them. Now, the thing that should jump out at you at this point is why would David want to get involved with Keilah? I mean, what does it have to do with David? Because if you remember, David is considered a fugitive at this time by Saul. He is continually being hunted. And so he's having to live in hiding. So why would he want to go and risk his life, not only with Philistines, but also with getting found out and being attacked by Saul? And not only that, Whose job actually was it to protect Israel from the Philistines? 
It was the king's job. It was actually Saul's job. And yet what we see here is that David is doing the job of the king because David is the true king. He's the one who, when Israel is attacked, he's the one who comes to the rescue. What we see, David, he does uh, save the inhabitants of Keilah, and no sooner does that happen that um, Saul finds out. And Saul sees this as a perfect opportunity to trap David in the town of Keilah and finally kill him. Now, thankfully, David has uh, the ephod. Did you notice that in verse 6? It says that the priest um, had the ephod and brought it to David. And you're probably wondering, what is the ephod? Uh, The ephod was actually the high priest's garment. And on the garment, it had an elaborate um, chest piece. And uh, through that elaborate chest piece, the the priest was able to um, receive revelation from God. Now, we're not told how it actually worked. Um, But we are told uh, many times in Scripture that it actually provided a way of finding out a yes-no answer from God. And you see David making use of it where he asks, you know, is Saul going to trap me? And uh, will the people of Keilah surrender me to Saul? And he gets um, answers. Uh, Both times it's yes. And so through that, David is able to escape. And that sounds like a great escape. But what we need to realise here is just how upsetting that must have been for David or how disappointing it would have been because he has risked his life to save the people of Keilah in two different ways, you know, from Philistines and from Saul. And even though he risked his life like that, he finds out that they will instantly betray him if Saul comes to the town. Can you imagine how discouraging that would have been? You'd feel pretty disillusioned. But that's actually only the start of it. Because if we read on in the passage, you go down uh, to verse uh, 16 and we see that David goes to um, Ziph. Uh, he's among the Ziphites. Now, who are the Ziphites? The Ziphites are actually people from Judah. That means they are, they are David's fellow tribesmen. They're his people. And we learn, what do they do? They also betray David to Saul. And so David, it's like everywhere he turns, people betray him, right? He really has nowhere to go. He's constantly being hunted from Saul, and when he helps someone out, they quickly betray him. When he goes to his fellow tribesmen, they betray him. The poor fellow, he just has nowhere to go. Can you imagine how demoralizing that would have been? Where can he turn to for for relief? And yet, what do we see in chapter 23? Right at the centre of these two stories of um, being betrayed, we have David receiving just what he needs at this point. Just what he needs. And so have a look at verse 15. It says, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. Hey, remember Jonathan. Jonathan is David's best friend. Ironically, it was Saul's own son. And uh, that, you know, we've looked at that in the past. But Jonathan, I mean, you can imagine for David, seeing Jonathan at a time like this, 
just seeing a good friend, that would have lifted his spirits. Okay, it's, it's wonderful having um, a close friend that when you're in distress, just to hang around them. That alone is company. However, that's not the, that's not the, the, the real encouragement, though. It's what Jonathan does for David that brings him encouragement at this time of great distress. Because it says that Jonathan strengthened his hand in God. Now that is such a wonderful picture of support. Uh, Jonathan, it's like he turns up at exactly the right time. And one commentator puts it beautifully. He says uh, that Jonathan, as it were, put David's hand into God's hand. Okay, that's, that's a picture that this phrase captures that Jonathan strengthened um, David's hand in God. It's like um, the time I went to uh, Fraser Island with um, my family and uh, one evening we were walking along the beach, you know, watching the sunset, absolutely beautiful. Then all of a sudden these dingoes just turn up and, uh, you know, when you're in Fraser Island, everywhere you turn you've got warnings saying, don't go near the dingoes, watch out for dingoes, the, you know, the rangers hand out stickers to the kids, be dingo aware. The whole time they're putting the fear of dingoes into you. And so when these dingoes turned up on the beach, we're walking along looking at them, I suddenly felt this little hand slip into mine and squeeze it tight. And, and do you realise that that's actually what Jonathan is helping David do with the Lord? Okay, he's taking David's hand, putting it where he will find strength, in the Lord's hand. But how did Jonathan do that? I mean, it sounds like a nice metaphor, but how did, what was the practical way that Jonathan did that? And we read it in verse 17, uh, where he reminded David of God's promise. He said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Now, just a side note there, that's the, the last time David would ever see Jonathan, his best friend. Uh, but here, here we see, how does Jonathan strengthen David? He reminds him of the promise. He says, you will be king. In other words, that's a promise of God's kingdom. Uh, David had been anointed king a long time ago. The oil that anointed him, it's long washed off. And so after you know, having his life on the line so many times and then really having nowhere to turn, you can imagine David would be struggling. But Jonathan knows just what to do. Strengthens his hand in God by pointing him to the promise. That's what David can cling to. That's what he needs in this time of great distress. And you know, that same promise, the promise of God's coming kingdom, that's actually given to everyone who belongs to Christ. Okay, the promise of the kingdom that's what we all need in time of distress. In fact, there is a sense in which Jonathan here actually points us to Jesus uh, because Jesus, he is the ultimate friend. Uh, Jesus is the friend who sticks closer than a brother, like Proverbs says. Uh, Jesus is the friend who lays down his life. You know, he lays down his life for his friends. And do you know that because Jesus went to the cross for his friends, that he is now the ultimate Jonathan who, who, as it were, takes our hand and puts it into the hand of the Father. See, it's at the cross that Jesus puts us in that position where we are made God's own and, and as a result, all of God's promises become ours. 
And do you know, you see Jesus acting like Jonathan in the New Testament. Remember that time when the Apostle Paul was, at the end of his life, he was on trial, and he says in 2 Timothy that at his first offence, no one came to stand by him, everyone deserted him. Kind of sounds like David, doesn't it? Uh, Then in verse 17, Paul says, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. It's exactly the same thing that Jonathan did. See, Jesus, he is like Jonathan, comes to us in our distress, strengthens us with his promise. And do you know the, um, the Puritans, um, who were um, theologians uh, many years ago, some of them actually used to call Jesus my divine Jonathan, which I think is a beautiful thing to reflect on because, you know, what a friend we have in Jesus, the one who comes to us, strengthens us, my divine Jonathan. And, um, I, I mean, I should point out at this point that there's, there is a sense in which all of us should be Jonathans to one another because, you know, how often does the New Testament um, instruct us to encourage one another? You know, we're to be there for each other. We're to be that friend who comes along and has just the right thing to say to someone in distress. And what is it that we can say? We can remind them of God's promises now, God's promise that they're all yes and amen in Christ. That means that if you're in Christ, God will never leave you or forsake you. He's promised you the kingdom. You will reign with Christ forever. But no matter how hard now is, the future is absolutely bright. It's certain. See, that's how the Lord upholds us. He upholds us with his promises. Second, though, we also see that God upholds us by his protection. And this is in verses um, 19 to um, the end of the chapter uh, of 23. And this is where the Ziphites try to hand David over to Saul. Uh, we can only assume there must have been some kind of um, reward. You know, those um, wanted posters, perhaps they were posted around, uh, a, a prize. And uh, so the Ziphites, David's own countrymen, they, um, they say to Saul, we'll hand him over. And Saul is absolutely wrapped. He goes into all this, um, you know, God talk, um, which, uh, <laughs> you know, he makes out he's a, a great believer, but he, he doesn't know the Lord. Uh, but anyway, he, um, he gets the Ziphites to act as spies. They're going to track David down for Saul and, and keep an eye on him and keep Saul in the loop so that Saul can go and strike David down. And uh, verse 26, we have, um, there's, this, there's this chase going on. It says, Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. And you can feel the tension building. This would just make a wonderful movie. Uh, it says that Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. Okay, Saul virtually has David in his grasp. And then, hey, presto, verse 27, a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come, the Philistines have made a raid against the land. <clears throat> so Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, the place was called the Rock of Escape, very aptly named, because that was, that was the closest Saul came to killing David. He was within seconds, right in Saul's grasp, and yet instantly this, there's a saviour, a saviour for David, and who is it? It's the Philistines. Uh, Now, most people um, would read that and go, wow, David is so lucky. What a lucky escape. But of course, we know better than that. We know there's no such thing as luck. 
Only providence. Okay, God's providence means that God is at work in everything. And we see here in God's providence, he had orchestrated things to protect David. And the means that he uses are the Philistines. This is why, actually, um, I should point out earlier in the passage in verse 14, it says at the end of that verse, Saul sought David every day, but God did not give him into his hands. So that's just tipping us off that it's God's providence. God is the one at work protecting David. And, uh, and he uses um, the Philistines, which is very ironic because at the start of the passage, you know, David saved people from the Philistines, and then at the end of the passage, um, the Philistines saved David from the people. So God often does things like that, and it's almost like he does it just to remind us that you know, he's the one doing it. Anyway, what, what is the point here, though? The point is that God was determined to protect David because God had determined that David would be the king. And if God has determined something, then it doesn't matter what anyone tries to do. It doesn't matter how powerful anyone is who opposes God's purposes. No one can ever outsmart God. Okay? If, if God's determined that David will be king, then he will be king. And that's the point that comes over and over through these, these lucky escapes, which are providential, uh, that God is ensuring that, his, that he will protect his man and, until he gets the throne. And there is a sense where, uh, there in which David foreshadows Jesus because Jesus, he is the king, the true king, the ultimate king, who will reign over all. He will build his church. He will save his elect. He will come again. He will defeat all of his enemies. He will restore all things. And nothing can stop that from happening. Okay, uh, Even in Jesus' earthly life, we actually see this um, playing out uh, where you know, over and over it says in the Gospels that um, people decided to kill Jesus and they were always trying to find a way to kill Jesus and yet over and over it says that they couldn't do that. Why? Because his time hadn't come. And that's just pointing us to the fact that, that God is sovereign over all of these things, that he was keeping... Uh, Jesus until until his time had come, and the time, of course, was the cross. But we even see that in the cross, that even then Jesus was protected. Because, yes, he died, he was buried, but like the psalm said, he was not abandoned to the grave. His body was not allowed to see decay. Why? Because he rose again, which shows us that God's protection is always so much greater than just um, making sure you have a nice, comfortable life. God's protection is far better than that because it's a protection that goes even through and beyond death. And see, having gone to the cross for us, that, that's actually the assurance that if we belong to Christ, we have that same protection. We have God absolutely committed to making sure that you will be there, reigning with Christ forever. Okay, that's guaranteed. That's locked in. Nothing can change that from happening. And Jesus, he even says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. My hand. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Do you see that? That is set, which means that no matter what you go through, what assurance you can have that, you know, one with Christ in him forever. 
It means that you can be distressed, but you don't have to despair. The, the, the Lord will always keep you. He will never abandon you. And even, even through death itself, you can be absolutely confident that he will protect you. See, that's why David can, can write in that psalm, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Now we start to see the depth of the meaning of that. The upholder of my life means that even when I die, the Lord is still upholding me and will bring me safely into his presence. So that's, that's the, the other way he upholds us. He upholds us by his protection. Uh, the third thing we see here, though, is that he upholds us by his purposes. And that's in chapter 24. And uh, as you can tell, we're going to race through this. Uh, so in verses 1 and 2, we see that Saul has uh, dealt with that Philistine issue. And what does he do? He instantly returns to hunting David. And in verse 3, we read that um, Saul, uh, he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to um, relieve himself. And uh, just so you know, apparently the caves that, that um, 1 Samuel talk about were enormous, like you could fit a 1,000 people in there with still plenty of um, room to spare. Anyway, Saul um, trundles down to a private part of this cave uh, to do his mm. business, and uh, it just so happens that he um, you know, comes to a place where David and his men are all hiding. And, and you can imagine the, the look on their faces to see Saul all alone with his pants down around his ankles. Uh, and they're all saying, this is the day the Lord has made. Um, let us rejoice and be glad in it. Uh, no, no, they, they actually, I'm assuming they're whispering, but they say to David, um, you know, this is the day the Lord has made. Go and clobber him. Look, God has handed him on a plate to you. And so David stealthily creeps up, cuts off a corner of um, Saul's robe. And um, you're probably wondering how he did that without Saul noticing. Um, It doesn't say, but I mean, we can come up with lots of explanations. Maybe there was a a howling wind through the cave, you know, kind of locks the noise. Or um, maybe um, Saul was um, concentrating really hard. Um, Anyway... Uh, Verse 5, it says that afterward, David's heart struck him because he cut a corner of Saul's robe. Do you see, David, he sees this action that he's just done as wrong. Okay, he is conscience struck. And why is that? It's not because he was upset that he destroyed such a lovely robe. Uh, That's not the reason. The reason, it's the symbolism of the action. See, David sees him cutting off a corner of the robe. It's almost like he's, he's grasping after the kingdom in his own strength, in his own timing, something that he has been resisting up until now. And uh, if you remember in chapter 15, remember when Saul tore Samuel's robe and Samuel said, that's symbolic of the kingdom being torn from you. And so there's that idea in 1 Samuel. And so David, he actually has to go back and rebuke his men because they're all sharpening their swords to get Saul. They're thinking, well, David's not going to do it. We're going to finish this guy off. But David rebukes them. And the issue that David has is that Saul is the Lord's anointed. And by saying that, what David is recognizing is that even though Saul is the rejected king and he is Saul's replacement, he still recognizes the office that Saul has. And that office of king is something that is God-ordained. So to attack Saul 
is essentially to go against God. It's to oppose God. Uh, so that's why David sees it as wrong in um, trying to kill Saul. He actually feels like he's acted in rebellion by cutting off that corner of the robe, which is why he lets Saul go and prevents his men from attacking. Uh, but then David goes out after Saul, once Saul has exited the cave, and he, he holds up this piece of cloth and he says to Saul, Oi! And, uh, and he, he shows Saul that he's not the enemy because Saul had it in his mind that David was out to get him. And so David holds his cloth up and he goes, Look at this. I could have, that could have been you. That could have been your head. And uh, David explains to Saul why um, he didn't kill him. Um, in verse 12, uh, he says, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. Uh, see, what David is saying here is that he could have easily justified killing Saul. He could have, he could have blamed it on self-defense. But David realized that to do so would be to go against God. And not only that, it would also be to fail to trust in God's justice. Okay? David had been treated unjustly by Saul, unjustly. Uh, but David, he recognized that God is the God of justice who promises to put all things right in the end. And so he's able to let God deal with all the injustice Saul had committed. He can leave it in God's hands and wait, trust in God's purposes, trust in God's timing for when he will get the throne. Uh, and so that, that just enabled David to actually practice what Romans 12, 19 says, uh, where we're commanded, uh, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. See, that's why David could, could resist that urge to get vengeance on Saul, by leaving it with God. And he was able to trust in God's timing. He knew God had a purpose in all of this. He knew he was the anointed king. Even Saul knew that. But he also knew that it's up to God to give that to him. And so he can wait. And uh, you'll notice at the end of this chapter, this is the first time in ages that Saul has this moment of clarity uh, he says, uh, you know, he lifts up his voice and he weeps and he says to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, where I have repaid you evil. And he even goes on in verse 20 to say that, now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Now, unfortunately for David, that sentiment won't last. Saul will quickly go back to, um, you know, this crazy idea that David's out to get him and he has to kill David. Um, but what we see here, again, we've got to see how, this, how David foreshadows Jesus because that's always the bridge to the application. And in this case, we see that like David, Jesus also faced that same temptation to take the kingdom by a shortcut uh, in a way that God had not ordained. You know, Jesus was promised all the kingdoms of the earth. Psalm 2 says that. And the only way that that would happen, though, was via the cross. Now, in Luke chapter 4, Satan turns up and he says to Jesus, hey, I can give you all the kingdoms of the earth. You just have to bow down and worship me. And Jesus wouldn't do it. 
Okay, even though all the kingdoms would come only through the cross, he would not compromise. He would not take the shortcut. He would not take matters into his own hands. Instead, he, he remained faithful to his father's plan, faithful to his father's timing. And we see that, you know, David, he foreshadows Jesus in that. He shows us, you know, that Jesus, the true king, he's the one who was faithful in every way, obedient in every single way. And it's only because of that that Jesus can actually be the saviour that we need. And it's only because of that that the kingdom that Jesus has promised is now open to us so that we can come in. And for us, as we follow Jesus, there will actually be many times in our lives where we are faced with very similar decisions. You know, this decision to trust in the Lord or to take matters into our own hands and compromise. And perhaps in the years ahead, we might feel the pressure to compromise more and more. And compromise can happen very subtly. And so we need to be alert. We actually need to keep our eyes on Jesus because only when we do that, we real, that's when we see what it looks like to, to be faithful, okay? to be able to face situations where the situation might say, you know, take the easy route out. And yet when we, when we look to Christ, we see, no, no, obedience. That's where blessing is. That's where we are called. You know, when Jesus acted in obedience, he was actually a model to follow for us. It's not only the way he secured our salvation, but he's also a pattern to follow. And that's especially important when it comes to um, the desire for vengeance. Because when, when you are treated unfairly, and we did see a couple of weeks ago a fellow treated unfairly because he was a member of a church. And we see that and we think, that's not fair. Okay, we want to, if it happened to us, we would certainly feel like we want to get even. But here we have this promise God will make it right. Okay, sometimes you can't have it all right in this life. Sometimes you just have to embrace the fact that justice will be done one day, just like David did. And rest in God's justice, which enables us then to respond in mercy. See, this is, this is how God upholds us. You know, how is it that we can go through something stressful like being treated unfairly and yet still keep our sanity? How can we do it without getting bitter and cynical? See, it's, it's this, that there is a God of justice who we can rest in, a God who has his purposes which are always for our good. He, he promises us that. And so if we can rest in him, that's what will actually make us better through those times, just like we see in David and uh, just like we see in Jesus. So we have in these two chapters, we have the resources that God gives us that we can embrace in the middle of deep distress uh, and that is that we, that we are encouraged by God's promises. We are protected even through death and we can trust in his promises and uh, in his purposes, sorry. And they are all ours in Christ. See, that's the only way these things can be yours. It's only through faith in Christ. And so in Christ, you can actually say with David, behold, God is my helper. The Lord 
is the upholder of my life. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the Lord Jesus, that he is the true king, the king who, who relied on the purposes that you had set for him in all of eternity to be that obedient son, to be the one who would have to wait uh, for the kingdom uh, and to even have to endure the cross as the very path to that glory. And we praise you, Father, that Jesus never wavered once, that even when he faced the fiercest temptation, that he was able to stand on your word and be that obedient son so that he could then offer himself as a sinless lamb of God to be our saviour. And Lord, we thank you that through Christ's death that we are saved from our sin and saved from living independently of you so that we can belong to Christ. And we thank you that in him, that all of your promises are ours, that we will reign with Christ forever, that we have that certainty that you will never leave us or forsake us. We praise you that we have the promise that even uh, death is not the end, but rather the, just the doorway to life eternal. Lord, we pray that in our distresses that we would um, find Jesus as that true friend who assures us that all your promises are yes and amen. We also praise you that in Christ we have that protection that is eternal. And we have that assurance that your, all of your purposes are working out even for the good of those who love you, that we would be conformed to Christ. So, Father, we pray that we would embrace these things. We pray that we would be like a Jonathan to each other, that we would be able to encourage each other in these things. And we pray that through that, that we would remain faithful to you. And we ask it all in Jesus' name.